Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Philippians, the book of Philippians chapter 1. And uh, Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to start. And uh, so excited for this morning. Um, All week, been excited to celebrate Christ with you. And there's a phrase in Scripture uh, where the Bible writers talk about our common salvation. And uh, there's nothing greater than coming together with the body of Christ and rejoicing in our common salvation, that we can celebrate Christ together. Um, And that's what we've been doing this morning. And I pray that you've engaged this morning. I pray that worship is not merely uh, as a spectator. Uh, I know sometimes in church we can kind of fall into this trap of just watching church happen up there on the stage. Um, And I know sometimes we may fall into that trap, but I encourage you uh, to not allow that to happen this morning, uh, to engage with what God is doing in your life and what he wants to share with you. Uh, I truly believe that every single time the word of God is open, uh, that God is going to speak to you. Uh, The Bible says that it will never return void. Uh, That means that what the Bible sets forth to do, it will accomplish. That's a pretty crazy thought, isn't it? Like if God is determined he's going to speak to you this morning, there is nothing you can do to stop that. He's going to speak to you. What you do control is how you respond to his leading you through the word of God. Uh, You can obviously see in scripture what he's trying to encourage you with and reject it and say, nope, I'm not going to hear that. It's doing what it's set forth to do, but you have been given a gift to either apply those things to your life by his grace, or to continue to walk in your own understanding. And so I want to encourage you this morning, as we look into the word of God, I want you to know that you can trust the word of God today. It wants to and will be a light unto your feet. Last week, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, there is nothing greater than Easter morning to know that the stone's been rolled away. And I'm so thankful, Gary's song, uh, there was a line in there. It kind of caught me off guard. You know, sometimes I think I know where the song's going or I know what the, and there was that line in there about the stone of the heart being rolled away. That was great. Uh, that's what happens when Christ saves us. He, he rolls away that stone of sin, right? That hard heart is now changed and begin to made new. And now we have a gift in Christ to be changed and transformed on the inside out. And so last week, and I really honestly pray this, I pray every day since last week, you've celebrated the resurrection of Christ. Uh, See, every day is resurrection day for us that know Christ. Amen. Uh, You don't have to wait for one day a year to celebrate that he rose again. Every morning you wake up and there's breath in your lungs and God has given you another day. You can live that day to his glory, remembering he rose from the dead for you and for I. And so I pray every day this week you've celebrated the resurrection of Christ. But as we celebrated the resurrection, we also talked about the gospel. And what is the gospel? We realize that he rose from the grave as a conquering hero over death and sin and hell. And that if we would place our faith and our trust in Christ and in Christ alone, we will find salvation. We will be made new. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that we bring nothing to him, that he did it all for us. He went to the cross for us. He went to the grave for us, and he rose again for us, but not just for us, but for his glory. See, that's the key in all this. He did all this for us, yes, that we would know him and have a relationship with him, but he did it ultimately that we would in turn then glorify him and sing praises to him, and as the Bible says, that his grace would be on display. You see, salvation is more about him than it is about you. That's the idea here, right? 
Salvation is more about him than it is about you. And that's a good thing, by the way. You should be really excited that salvation is more about him than it is about you. Because if it was more about you, then it's not very secure. It's not very firm. Uh, anybody in here ever waver on something? You, you set out with this great resolution. I've resolved to do this thing. And a month goes by and you realize you've fallen flat on your face. We're going to get our budget in order, right? We're going to get our finances in order. And I heard someone say, we're just going to go, you know, we're just going to go look at the boats. We're not going to buy a boat. We can't afford a boat. We're just going to go look at the boats. We can't afford a car. Let's just go drive around the parking lot of the dealership and just keep doing laps until that salesman comes out. And we're going to say no, but let's just go do some laps and just, we're just going to look. Here's the truth. Women can window shop. Men cannot window shop. This is truth. This isn't even in the message. This is free. This is just on the... Think about this. A woman can go to a store for hours and buy nothing. Drives men crazy, right, guys? Amen? You walk into a store with your wife, and you, you go into the store thinking what? One of the first things a man will ask his wife when they walk in the store is, what are we here to buy? Give me an objective, task, right? Now, some men might be window shoppers. I'm, I'm kind of being general here, but for me, I'm not a window shopper. Sandra can go to the store and just, let's just go to Kohl's and look around. I go into Kohl's and I'm like, can we, are, are we getting anything? Like, this is silly. We're just looking. But see, men don't look. We just go to buy. So ladies, if your husband ever says, let's just go look at fill in the blank, Say no. If you don't want it in your driveway or in your garage, don't say yes to window shopping. When you think about this idea, though, that we get these resolutions and we decide we're going to stand by this and, man, we want to and our desire is there, but we're weak. I mean, what does the Bible say? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is Weak. That's the things of God. We want to do even the things that God calls us to do. Man, we have great intentions, and, and many of us, by his grace, will stand. But if it was just in us, if it was apart from Christ, we would fall every single time. And we do fall every single time. John tells us this in John 15. It says that, that he is the vine and we are the branches, and without him we can do nothing, the Bible says. And that flies in the face of our culture today that says that you are your own boss and you be who you are and you stand on your own two feet. No, as a follower of Christ, we fall graciously at his feet and we ask him for his help and guidance. So as we talk about this idea of the gospel, first and foremost, I pray that you know Christ as your savior. I pray that you are not trusting in church membership. I pray that you're not trusting in baptism when you were an infant. I pray that you're not trusting in, in the doing of the religious things that you've done in your life. I pray that if you say, no, I, I'm, I know Christ. I'm a Christian, if you will. I pray that you say that and you make that declaration based solely in the person of Jesus Christ, meaning that you've confessed and repented of your sins You've trusted in Christ for your salvation. He has miraculously and graciously saved you. And now in turn, you glorify him by surrendering all of you to him. Your life is not yours. You have been bought with a price, the Bible says. You live for him. And so I pray that if you're here today and you say, you know, pastor, I'm a Christian. I know I'm a Christian. 
I pray the, the rest of that sentence is, because I've received Christ, not because I go to church or because I'm a good person or because I do good things. Being a Christian is literally being a follower of Christ. It means I've put my faith and trust in Christ, and now my eyes are on him. I love that Jesus, every time he called one of his disciples to follow him, it was never follow me to better things. That's not the invitation that Christ gives. What does Christ tell us? He says, follow me, and that's enough. We say, well, I'll follow if I know what's coming. I'll follow if it's better. And that's even being preached in some churches today, isn't it? People will say, well, God will never close a door without opening a window. It's really funny. I don't see that in here, though. I see lots of times where he closed the door and people were like, um, where'd you go? How many psalmists cry out and say, how long will the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer persecution? See, some of the stuff that's being just, I said it before, just because it's on a Christian station or, or someone says they're the pastor of a church doesn't mean it's necessarily coming from this book. Man, we got to be discerning of these things. Listen, sometimes God will close the door and leave it closed for a long time. And he'll say, are you going to trust me when the door is closed? Are you going to trust me until I show you what's next? Are you going to trust that I'm good just because I'm telling you I'm good? Or do you keep needing things to prove to you that I'm good? Or can you just trust? Can you just put your faith in me and realize that I said I'm good, therefore I'm good? You see, salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone, and we have to start there. And kind of as a follow-up to that, I was kind of praying over, okay, Lord, you know, with the excitement of Easter and everything going on, where do we go next? And I was sharing with someone just the other day that I have a sermon calendar. I kind of write in different ideas of where we're going to be throughout the course of the year. But Sandra, a few years ago, she discovered erasable pens. It's the greatest thing ever. Erasable pens. Did you get this? Erase you can write it in pen and then erase it. It's amazing. Okay? Now, some of you are like, they've had those forever. I was not aware of such a thing. My mind was blown when I discovered this thing. And so my sermon calendar is all in erasable pen because I want to be able to, to kind of be changing where God will lead. And I had a whole serious thing figured out, I'm going to do all this. And God just kind of the last week was like, ah, we're not going that way. And I just kind of felt him leading as I was studying and looking at some things that as a good follow-up to Easter, we're going to talk about the assurance of our salvation. And we know how to be saved. We know that we're saved in Christ apart from our good works. But the question arises, once I've received Christ as my Savior, is it really forever? I mean, is it really an eternal promise and guarantee that I will be saved forever? And this is a struggle for many of us. Many of us have doubted our salvation at times in our life. Even in Christian church, there has been, throughout the history of the church, those that have even taught and preached such a thing as loss of salvation, that we can hit a point where we can actually lose the very salvation we thought we once had. I mean, is it possible, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning and maybe even next week, I'm not sure, is it possible for me to get to a place where I commit this sin, this specific sin, and actually no longer am saved by God's grace? I mean, does the Bible even teach such a thing? Does the church traditions and history teach such a thing? Many of us have wondered these things. You don't have to raise your hand, but let's just be honest for a moment and just answer this for yourself. Whether you believe in the assurance of your salvation or not, I got to believe that every Christian, every follower of Christ at some point 
Maybe because we stumble into a sin situation or because we, we see things going on around us where God is not doing what we think God should do. <laughs> you ever have God do something that you think he shouldn't do? You ever try to remind God of your plan? I've always wondered, how much does God laugh when we just tell him what our plan? Oh, God, no, you can't do it that way. I heard someone say, one, one author speaker was saying, you know, God's plan will always, not sometimes, but God's plan will always be different than our plans. It's not every now and then his plan is different. No, it's almost always different than we set out to, for it to be. And so what do we do? We write our plans in erasable pen. And we say, nope, God's changing it. I'm changing. I thought this is what I was going to do, and I did it with God's wisdom, but he's changing, so I'm going to go with God. But maybe at some point in your life, you've wrestled with this. You've, you've actually gone back and forth about, man, I know, I know I did this back then, but I just don't, and here it is, feel saved. I just don't feel very saved today. Maybe again, because God closed that door and he's not revealed to you the next thing and you're wondering, God, are you even there? And so over the next little bit this morning and maybe even next week, seeing how time goes, you have a handout there. You're going to notice there's six points we're going to cover in just a little bit. Many of you realize very quickly that three points is the normal sermon length. Some of you are good at math and you figured out that three points usually is about 45 to 50 minutes. And you're thinking, okay, so that means we won't get home till tomorrow, right? Like that's how you're thinking this through. I told Sandra this morning, she said, is the crock pot on low? And I said, yes. <laughs> no, actually, I, I shouldn't even say this from the pulpit. This, isn't, this is not the Holy Spirit. This is total flesh. But she was in the bathroom getting ready. And ladies, you ever get the crock pot going, but you think you, you thought you turned it on? But then you thought, wait, did I turn it on or did I turn it on low? Is it off? So she called out from the bathroom, you know, hey, is the crock pot on whatever? I think it was low or high. Okay, it was high. Yeah, there you go. See, I don't even know. And I looked at the crock pot and it was on high. And I just said, what? And she said, is the crock pot set to high? And I said, the crock pot's not even on. There's a moment of fear that comes through a woman at that point because she's already done the math in her head to realize when it's going to be done on high. And I think her exact words were, what? I said, I'm just kidding, it's on high. So. <laughs> so if Shane, who's a lawyer, gets a call from her this week asking for paperwork, just ignore that call. Don't even pay attention to that. <laughs> She's just kidding. As we talk about this idea of assurance of salvation, we have to be grounded in this. Listen to me now. As followers of Christ, there is no greater tactic the enemy will use than to get you to doubt your salvation. Because if you doubt your salvation, you doubt your God. And if you doubt your God, then you're not going to live and serve him. You're not going to honor him. Who is he? He doesn't even care for you. He can't even hold on to you. However, in the church, and maybe even someone here is coming from a background where there's been teaching in a church that you grew up in, that's been debated in the church for a long time. And though, there are those that believe that while, yes, we are saved by grace, we can lose our salvation by not doing this or that work or if we commit this or that sin. So a couple questions here. You don't need to answer out loud, but just here's what we're going to tackle over the next morning or two. Does the Bible give us an assurance of our salvation? Does the Bible actually teach us that there is a confident hope that we can hold on to as followers of Christ? I want to look at a wonderful verse where the Apostle Paul gives us a great encouragement and then we're going to jump over to Romans chapter 5 in just a moment for the rest of our message. But I want to start here in Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse 6. 
Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Philippi here. Uh, he's encouraging them. It's an amazing letter. Uh, he, he just loves on them and, and encourages them. He supports them. He praises them for their faith. Uh, he talks about that they're an example for Christ. But I want to look at verse 6 of chapter 1 as Paul's writing to the believers here. He says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, I know that we've already come before you in prayer, but I ask that you would still our hearts and still our minds, open our understanding, give us great wisdom in this, Lord, because I believe that we need to have a confident hope. We need to know what your word actually says in the face of our feelings that can be so frivolous, our feelings that come against us and make us want to doubt, our flesh that rises up and tries to convince us of something contrary to your word. I pray, Lord, that we would not just go at this and say, well, I, I refuse to believe that I could lose my salvation without having some understanding of why scripturally that is true. Lord, I pray that we would be people of the, of the book, people of the word of God, that we would stand by your word. Because, Lord, our experiences, our understanding are all momentary and fleeting. Lord, I cannot say I feel saved because I feel saved, and that's the answer. I need to know what your word says. Our confidence comes from you. Lord, you are the one that saved us, and I pray that you would be the one that would assure us of that very salvation. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your mercy. And I do pray, Lord, above all things, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you as Savior, from the youngest to the oldest, I pray that you would speak to them by the conviction of their sin through the working of the Holy Spirit. Lead us into the understanding of what you did for us on the cross, and may we confess our sins, repent and believe in you, trusting in you for salvation. Love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says here that I can be confident, confident of this truth. Another translation says it this way. The New Living Translation translates this verse this way. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. I love that translation for this reason. It emphasizes a couple things. First, it says, who began the work in us? Did we begin the work in ourselves or did God begin a work in us? The Bible says that God began a work in you. Then it goes on to say, not only did he begin the good work within you, it says, we'll continue his work, his work in you, until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. How is our salvation finally finished? How is our salvation finally finished? We are saved now in this very moment. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are saved in that moment. But here we read that our salvation is a continual process where we're not just saved now, but we are being saved now, and we will be saved one day when we stand before him. What does the Bible say? We will see him, and we will be like him. And that's a crazy thought, isn't it? I don't think anybody in this room would say, oh yeah, I totally believe I'm just like Jesus Christ right now. I think we all know our limitations. We all know our weaknesses. But the Bible says that when we see him, we will be like him. And that is the day that our salvation would be finally finished. No more sin. Amen. Anybody tired of fighting temptation? 
Anybody tired of being battled against and persecuted against and feeling conflicted and feeling those pulls when you know God is calling you to one thing, but you feel this pull internally to do another and you're just sick and tired of it? There will be one day that we will be fully and finally redeemed. No sin nature, no sadness, no sorrow with Christ forever and not because of you. Not because you did a good job. Not because you keep doing a good job. Some of you are performance-driven individuals. You're just geared this way. Like you have a task, you know if you accomplish that task, and you don't sleep at night if you don't get the task done. You're just, you have to get the job done. Some of you are so, so task-oriented that people are merely pawns to achieve and end results. Some of you have bosses like this. Usually these people are very good at organizing corporations. And it frustrates you when you feel like you're just a number. But that's because your boss is like, I don't really care how it gets done. Just get it done. Some of you are married to people like this. I pray for you. Some of you, I mean, you know people like this, right? It's great to be task-oriented and to be focused and get things done. We need to be driven. But realize, though, people are not just a pawn in the process. They're part of the process. And you need to love and encourage them as well. But sometimes we think it's all about our performance. It's all about how good I do. Like, I stay saved because I'm good enough. But if we understand the truth of salvation, that flies in the face of grace. And so let's walk this out, because I think there's two major objections. This isn't in your notes, but just to kind of set the stage. You can jot this on the back if you'd like. There's two major objections that I've personally heard when I've talked to individuals about this, when I've studied this, or I've read different things on this. Two major objections to the assurance of salvation. The first would be that some would say, and they argue, it gives you a license to sin. A license to sin. Some would say, if you tell someone all their sin is already forgiven and that they're saved for eternity no matter what they do, then they'll just go out and live sinfully and do whatever they want, and in turn, making God uh, embarrassed or mocked because they just do whatever they want. You're giving people a license to sin. I remember I was preaching one time, and I said that our sin, past, present, and even your future sin, is already forgiven in Christ. So I told people, I said, if you commit a sin two weeks from now, God is already aware of it. He's already forgiven you of it. We still repent when we commit the sin. Why? Not for salvation, but for relationship. Because that sin now bars and puts a barrier between me and God. God is not changed. I'm the one that is distancing myself from God by allowing the sin to come between us. But I made that comment, and someone, uh, it doesn't attend our church, someone said, well, wait a minute. I don't think you should tell people their future sin is forgiven. I don't think that's right. That doesn't sound right. And it was in a conversation. I said, well, I appreciate you, you bringing this up. Let's talk about this, because I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, and just so you know, if I ever preach something, you're like, I don't know about that. Let's go to the Word of God and see what it actually says. And then if I am wrong and the word of God is showing me I'm wrong, believe me, I have no problem changing. But in this case, I said, well, what do you think the Bible says? And they said, well, I'm not really sure. And I said, well, do you think the Bible teaches that in Christ all of our sins are forgiven, even future sins? And this person said, yes. Okay, so you agree the Bible teaches that? Yes. So, but you don't think I should have told the church that? No. Why? Why? Well, I don't know. It just doesn't sound right. It just doesn't sound right. It sounds like you're giving people a license to sin. And I understand what this person is saying. Believe me, I do. 
But what does the Bible actually say? The Bible says that do we sin that grace may abound? God forbid, the Bible says, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and and verse 2. We don't sin that grace may abound and, oh, just throw the grace card out there. No, Paul is telling the church at Rome, apparently this was a problem. Apparently Christians were sinning and choosing sin and then saying, well, I'm saved by grace, so it doesn't really matter. Paul was saying, no, 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 no. We don't make grace vain and empty by flaunting our grace and living in sin. A true convert of Christ will always carry conviction of sin. So if I sin as a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit will convict me, the Bible says, and I will be led to repent of that sin. We don't just sin and sin and sin. First John, what does First John tell us? My little children, sin not. That's the affirmation. That's the declaration. That's the goal. Sin not. Then he says, but if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So our goal is what? As followers of Christ, we strive to sin not. But if I fall into sin and make a sinful decision, I have a defense with the Father, Jesus Christ, because he is the one that saved me. He is the mediator, the go-between between God and man. So again, assurance does not mean I sin because I can. Assurance means I know I am saved in spite of my sin. And by his grace and sanctification, I will sin less, not more, as I walk with Christ. Sanctification is just a theological term. It literally means to be made holy. And we are made holy in Christ at salvation. We're being made holy right now, right? And that moment that you used to think something was okay, but God has shaped your thinking and changed your thinking. Now you realize, no, I shouldn't live like that. I shouldn't think like that. That's God changing you and growing you. You're being made holy. And one day you will be completely holy when your salvation is finally finished. So a license to sin is one of the clear objections, but we can see that scripture teaches that that is not a case. Also, some would say that there's a, or they rather point to passages in the Bible that seem to suggest we can lose our salvation. Maybe you've had this experience. You've been at work and someone says, hey, you believe that you can always be saved? Once saved, always saved, right? And whenever somebody says that, amen, that's right. We are once saved, always saved. But when someone says that, do you know what that means? They're usually trying to, to goat you a little bit, right? Trying to prod you into a conversation. And then they'll create some crazy situation. You ever have this happen to you? Well, what about this guy? And then they'll create the worst human being on planet Earth. You mean to tell me that if he got saved, he'd be saved forever? And you just look at them with this sheepish grin and go, yeah, yep. Why? Because the Bible actually teaches that once you receive Christ as your Savior, you are always saved. But what about these random verses that people will pull up? What about Hebrews chapter 6? What about these passages that say that once you've known of this and you've tasted of this and then you fall from grace, what's that talking about? And again, I, I wanted to put all this in your notes, but for just time's sake and on your paper, I don't want to do all this. So if you have questions on this, we can talk more later. But here's what I would encourage. If you come across a passage that you feel kind of hints at the loss of salvation or someone brings it to your attention, I would encourage you, look at that passage in context That means look at the actual story around it, the passages around it, the verses around it. Look at what it's actually talking about, and you'll come up with this conclusion if you're looking at it honestly. Either it's not speaking of believers, it's speaking of false teachers, it's speaking of those that were what we would say are uh, professing believers, but not possessing believers, okay? So hear me now. There's such a thing in the church as professing believers who are not possessing believers. What do I mean by that? There are those that may go to church. 
They may say they're a Christian. They may talk like they're a Christian. They may, whatever this looks like, dress like a Christian. They may say all the right things, but they never have actually for themselves received Christ as their Savior. I mean, they go to church, they look religious, they look like they got it all figured out, but really, in their heart of hearts, if you actually ask them, they would tell you, well, I've never actually received Christ. I go to church because my mom and dad go to church. I go to church because of this. I go to church because of that. You see, Jesus even says this in the Gospels, doesn't he? He says, they'll be on that day. Those will cry out, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. See, there are those that will think because they do these religious works that they're going to be entered into heaven. But the Bible is clear. Jesus said, no, 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 no. There's only one way into the, into the shepherd, the sheepfold. There's only one way into the, shepherd, to the sheepfold, and it's through the shepherd, John chapter 10. So those that would say, well, this passage or that passage in the Bible seem to suggest it, I would say that if you look at that passage, odds are it's somebody that is not really a Christian, somebody that's a professing but not possessing believer. Sometimes it's referring to false teachers, those that are leading the church astray. So those are the two clear objections that seem to come up most commonly in talking about this topic. But I want to encourage you this morning with not just some objections, but also a divine guarantee that we can trust a divine guarantee that we can trust. You have your notes there, and I'm going to give you six great truths that provides the divine guarantee. Six great truths that provides the divine guarantee. Go over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul also writes the book of Romans. The book of Romans is an amazing book. If you've never read it, never studied it, it is kind of like Paul's uh, book on doctrine or theology or teaching, okay? This is like his kind of the, the big whammy book, right? Like it's like in your face, here's all these truths. You're going to read words like sanctification, justification, glorification, right? He spends countless chapters on understanding that we have sinned before God. The first three chapters of Romans, they don't have time to go there, but if you study it on your own, you're going to find out in the first three chapters of the book, Paul makes a case that by the end of the third chapter, all of the world is guilty before God in sin. First chapter, he talks about these, these Gentiles that would come before him, their pagan religions, and they're doing these pagan things, and they're living in these pagan ways, and, and they think they're good, but they took the creation, and they started worshiping the creation instead of worshiping the creator. Chapter 2 deals with the Jewish people. They think they're good because they have the law and the religion, and they're of Abraham. Paul makes the case that they're just like the pagans. In chapter 3, we read that all of the sin, or all of the world has fallen short in sin. So this section that we're going to read in chapter 5 really begins in chapter 3. Really, the beginning part of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 5 is kind of a case for salvation in Christ alone. So when you read this here, I encourage you to go back chapter 3, and read it in context. But we're going to start in chapter 5 and verse 1 as we begin this idea of understanding the six great truths that provide a divine guarantee. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says this, Therefore, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. To me, I don't know if there's a more amazing verse in the New Testament. We have peace with God. And some of you, that doesn't mean a lot. 
even those of you that are believers, that may not really mean a whole lot. And you might just think, okay, yeah. If it doesn't mean a lot to you now to understand the peace with God that you possess, it's most likely because you don't understand the length at which you hated God before. You most likely don't understand the length at which you were an enemy of God, the Bible says, before. And by the way, the Bible says that we were his enemies. And this is where people say, well, yeah, but God wasn't our enemy. The Bible's pretty clear on this. God says in Psalm, we covered this, that his wrath is poured out on the ungodly. That he actually, as much as he wants to save us, First Peter says that he wishes none would perish, but all would come to repentance. But those that do not trust in Christ, the Bible is very clear that we will pay for our sins. We were enemies of God, but God's wrath was on us. And so if you don't really understand that, then when you read words like this, that we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, if that doesn't just give you great cause for praise, then maybe you don't understand the great length and the distance you were from God before you were saved. This is key to knowing we are sealed through eternity. The peace we have with God is through faith. The peace we have with God is through faith. This is not a future possession. This is a present possession. You have peace with God right now. Not because of your good works, not because of what you've done, but because you put faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This peace is so much more than mere tranquility. I think we need to understand this because I think we think very surface when we think about peace. This is so much more than mere mental tranquility. It's not based in an emotion. This peace has nothing to do with emotion or how you feel. We've got to get beyond that. It's part of that, I guess, to a certain extent, but the depth of this is so much deeper than just a feeling or an emotion. It is not based in an emotion, but in a relationship. Your peace with God is not based in how you feel. It's based in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. It's in that relationship that you have through Christ that brings peace. I believe you have this in your notes. It's a quote by John MacArthur, and he said it so well. Justification by faith in Jesus Christ, establishing a new relationship with the believer and a holy God. Man, justification by Christ. This idea that we put our faith in Christ, it establishes a new relationship with the believer and a holy God. We were, as we are in sin, enemies with God. There was no peace. There was no peace. You, apart from Christ, hated God. And you might say, well, I didn't really hate God. I didn't even know of God. In our nature, we are, cre- we are, we are born with this bent towards the things of self and sin and against God. The Bible says that no man seeks after God. That in our flesh, we want nothing to do with him. What did Jesus say? That when he came and he brought light, men rejected the light because we prefer darkness. Because the light reveals, and we don't want our secrets revealed. We want our sins revealed. See, we were enemies of God. I want you to think about how that would look in your own life. Just to have God as your enemy. 
to have no peace with God. But then Christ came and everything changed. And we put our faith and trust in Christ and now we are no longer enemies with God. We are the sons and daughters of God, the very friends of God, all because of Christ. John chapter 14 and verse 27. I'm going to go over and read that just quickly. You can jot it down for note's sake, but John 14, verse 27. Jesus speaking here in his famous chapter, talking about that he was going to prepare a place for us. This is the moment in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Thomas asked, I don't, we don't even know how to get there. How do we know where you're going? How do we know the way? Jesus was very clear. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. In this very same chapter, he gives a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit that is coming in behalf of Christ and will take up residence in the believer's life. And look at verse 27 if you're there or just listen. Jesus said this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, one of the most clear demonstrations and guarantees that we have of eternal salvation is he says, I will give you eternal peace. And it's not in you. It's nothing to do with you. Once you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, he says he is the one that authors this peace. Jesus said through the Holy Spirit, I will give you peace. And I won't give it as the world gives it. I'm going to give it to you beyond understanding and you can allow it to comfort you to a degree where your heart will not even be troubled. Do you know what that word means there? Troubled, it means to be anxious. Anybody ever get a troubled heart, an anxious heart? And we all stumble into those things. But he says, no, no, the peace I give you is beyond understanding. The objective fact of his peace creates a subject of overflow of calmness and tranquility. The objective fact, the truth that he gives us peace, creates a subjective or experiential overflow of calmness and tranquility. You do not have peace with God because you feel like you have peace with God. You have peace with God because he has gifted it to you by his Holy Spirit, and that leads to the feeling of peace with God. You see, peace with God is the first key we must understand, and we cannot get away from the fact that it is by faith in Christ alone. Number two, quickly, we are also standing in grace. Standing in grace. Romans 5 and verse 2, as we go on here, and I'll read verse 1 again for context. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace. Into this grace. Through Christ. And you might notice all morning I've been saying through Christ, in Christ, by Jesus Christ. The reason is because every single thing that we have that pertains to the blessing of salvation comes through Christ. Every single blessing you have because of salvation comes through Christ. We have been granted an introduction into grace, access into grace. The truth is, this is the most wonderful, shocking, life-alterating understanding of this word in the New Testament. What is that word I'm talking about? You might think I'm talking about grace. As powerful as grace is, the word I'm talking about is access. 
See, the word grace is powerful, but the most powerful word in this verse is the word access. You see, we can praise God. We have access into grace. You ever stop and think about that, that you are ushered in to the presence of God by grace? That you are gifted grace, and now you can pray, and you can communicate with him. You can have the peace of God given to you. In the Old Testament, we read of how inaccessible God was to the Jewish people. And for time's sake, we don't have time to go there, but I want to encourage you to read Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, we find where God tells Moses to warn the people to not get too close. What happened to the individual who got too close to the Ark of the Covenant and touched the Ark of the Covenant, violating and defiling the very holy of God? The Bible says his life was taken. You see, in the Old Testament, God is a God that was inaccessible to the people. Even think about the temple courts, various degrees of boundaries as to how close one could get to the Holy of Holies. And even the priest himself could only enter the, the Holy of Holies one day a year. And that came after serious cleansing and prayer and just rigorous obligations to the law. Only after that and only on the Day of Atonement could he enter the Holy of Holies. You see, the very presence of God was inaccessible to average and ordinary and normal man. We could not just walk into the presence of God. There was boundaries and limitations and divisions because he is holy and we are not. And then Jesus Christ came and he manifested us grace and truth. And when he died on the cross, what happened to that veil in the temple that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of us? It was torn in two. And it was severed as a symbolic way of showing, no, 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 no. You are no longer inaccessible to God. Now you have all the access given to you by grace, through grace, for grace. It is all through grace and through Christ. Christ came and when he decided to give his life a sacrifice for our sins, that curtain was divided and we have access. 1 Peter 3.18, I'm going to read it just quickly. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us an amazing truth in agreement with this. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Praise God that we, as the unjust, can claim his righteousness through grace. It says that Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might, what? Bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Did you catch that? That he might bring us to God. Why did he come? Why did he die? So that he, yes, could glorify God and establish a relationship, but it's so much more than that, that we would have access that we would be in the presence of God. It is grace that we stand, not law. It is grace that we stand, not law. So salvation is by grace initially, and it is sustained by grace. God keeps us in grace and keeps us standing, as we see in Jude 24. One more verse before we close. Jude 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Did you hear that? 
Now unto him, that being Christ, unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Do you know what amen means? We say this all the time, but I want you to know what the Bible actually says. Amen means, and so let it be, and let it go forth. This is a truth. This is a truth claim. It's trustworthy. We're going to believe it. Now go stand in it. And what is the truth we're standing in? That he is able to keep you from falling that in Christ we stand in grace. You do not have access to God because you worked your way there. You do not have access to God because you're good enough, because you're better, because you're righteous, because you go to church. You have access to God because Christ died for you, rose again for you, and opened the doors of heaven and said, no, you can come in under my blood and as my son and as my daughter, and now you have access to the very inaccessible God. We have peace with God. We have peace with God by grace. And we stand in grace. Why? Because it is grace that has saved us. It is grace that sustains us. Next week, we'll unpack the other four truths. But I want to encourage you this morning. If you at all have felt doubts, if you at all have wavered in your confidence that I'm encouraging you to come this morning to bend a knee and say, God, thank you for offering me and granting to me peace. That when I was an enemy, when I was against you, when I rebelled in sin, not even knowing you or your law and did my own thing, I'm so thankful that you came and that you saved me. You offered your grace to me. We have peace with God and we stand in his grace. I don't think it's a mistake that in the book of Ephesians, when Paul's writing about the armor of God, he says we have a helmet of salvation. I love that helmet of salvation. You know why? Because it is our minds that must be protected to the truth that we are saved forever through Christ. Because our minds will be tempted to think other things, to doubt, but we stand with the truth. We don't have a feeling of salvation. We're not emotionally saved. We are standing in the truth of God's word that no, he has offered us peace by faith through Christ and we stand in grace. So I don't know how God is speaking to you this morning, but however he's speaking, would you respond to him as we have a word of prayer in a time of invitation? Would you bow your heads with me right there where you are? With your head bowed and nobody looking around out of respect for others, the praise man's going to come and lead us in a song of invitation. And this time of invitation is really just an opportunity to respond. We invite you to come and maybe you feel led to, to come to the front and bend a knee here at the, at the altar and just spend some time with God in prayer. Maybe you're here and you feel like you've been doubting and, and questioning your salvation. You don't really feel saved at times in your life recently and you're just not sure and And you just want to come and just say, God, make it sure. God, make it firm that I would know that I know that I'm saved, not because of me, but because of you, because of your 
salvation, your gospel that you offer to me. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you've never personally received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've gone to church, you've done religious things, you've been, tried to have been a good person, the truth is that we cannot be good enough. That is why Christ came and died for us. Among all the world religions, among all the belief systems of the world, only Christianity stands as the, the belief system, the, the teaching that it's not about what we do for God, but it's about what God did for us. And so maybe you want to come this morning and just bend a knee and say, God, I need you. I repent of my sins. I believe you love me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins, and I surrender my life to you because the Bible says if we die in our sin, that we will be accountable for our sin. And the Bible says that we would be cast into a place called hell for all of eternity but that doesn't have to be your eternity. So maybe there as you're praying in your seats that you would just right now cry out to him and say, God, I, I need you. I pray you'd forgive me of my sins. I commit my life to you. Maybe you're here and you're a believer and you want to come and pray. Maybe you want to pray there in your seats. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him? Heavenly Father, bless now this time of invitation. May be glorified and help us to know with great assurance that it is by Christ that we have peace with God. It is by Christ that we have access into grace, that we can now receive your grace and stand and be sustained in that. And thank you for being the God that holds on to us. And thank you for being the God that will never let us fall. We love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Uh, invitation is simple. If you want to come and pray, come and pray. There are those in the front here that would love to pray with you, uh, men and women that would love to pray with you if you want to pray with somebody. Uh, we want to invite you to respond this morning. Are you feeling that doubt? You're not sure? Maybe you want to come and say, God, thank you for the assurance of salvation.